Exodus chapter 1, the very first seven verses. This is the chapter or the passage of scripture that you often skip when you're doing Bible reading. Is uh, We don't like all the names, and uh, so we skip the genealogies. And we're going to spend a good hour, two hours, three, going over these seven verses here today. Alright, so follow along with me as we cover this passage. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. Exodus. Exodus is a story with a lot of twists, a lot of turns. Uh, there's murder, there's plagues, there's burning bushes, there's parting of the Red Sea. There's these mysteries, but there is so much more to this story. See, ultimately, the, the book of Exodus is not about a guy named Moses. But rather, the book of Exodus is ultimately about God. It reveals how God makes promises, how He punishes sin, and that He will use whatever means necessary to free, deliver, and to redeem His people. Prayerfully, um, by the end, by the conclusion of this series, that we, the people of Mission Church, whether online or in person, will, will be a people who see God as the book of Exodus describes Him in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where it states that God is merciful and gracious, that He is slow to anger, and that He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Pastorally, uh, we believe that a clear understanding of God in the book of Exodus will stir your affections ultimately for Jesus himself. All scripture is pointing to the hero, Jesus. The Exodus was a historical event. However, it, it serves as an example of the Christian life. See, sin has has left us in bondage, separated from God. God punishes, but He promises deliverance. He sends one to lead us, and through moments of obedience and disobedience, He loves us through discipline, provision, and growth until we reach the promised land. The Exodus is about God. The Exodus is about God saving his people, but not just leaving them saved. In the midst of all of that, we see the Great Commission even being played out in the Old Testament as He has saved them, liberated them, freed them, but then commissioned them to be engaged in the mission, His mission, throughout the world. See, ladies and gentlemen, not only are we saved from something, which is sin, but we are saved to something, and that's worship and mission. It's difficult to understand God and the rest of Scripture without having a good working knowledge of this Old Testament book. As most of the Old Testament is referencing to this very story. Many of the Psalms come back to it. Many of the other books are describing it even inside the New Testament. One of the stories that is often quoted, if not most quoted, is what? The story of the Exodus. Because it's, it's not just something that is referring back to something that happened in the past, but rather it's used over and over again, this historical event, as a parable, as an illustration for those of us who are currently following after Jesus and struggling much like these 
early followers of God. The book of Exodus is essentially divided into two major sections. you got pretty much chapter 1 through chapter 18, 19, and then the second part is chapter 19 through 20. So beginning today, what we're going to do is, is starting today through June, we're going to cover the first 18 to 19-ish chapters. We're going to take a break during July to do our summer series uh, through the month of July, and then when we come back out in August, we'll pick back up where we left off for season two, if you will, um, and that's when we're going to be at the Ten Commandments, and we're going to preach through each one of the Ten Commandments and then finish out on the last day of December of 2021, we will preach our last sermon in the book of Exodus, all right? So just for you type A folks, I'm an A minus. Uh, for you type A, there you go. There's the plan. All right? So join us. We encourage you to join us in that. All right? So before I dive into this particular passage, I do need to do some, I've done some historical work. Now I need to do some theological work with you, and I need to teach you a word. All right? That word is providence. Everybody say the word providence. Oh, man, you guys did Revival has come to this body of believers, all right? That's awesome. Providence, providence. God's providence is going to be seen over and over and over and over again um, as we study through this book. And we, and we pray that not only on Sunday mornings, but also in your personal time, that you will see this attribute of God over and over and over again, not only in the scripture, but also in your own lives. A lot of times in churches like ours, we love to talk about the sovereignty of God. We even use this sort of language when we're talking about government. We'll say it's a sovereign rule, typically toward a king or a queen. They have sovereign rules, sovereign authority. It really means like they're in control. They're the governing body. And the scripture is very clear that ultimately God is the sovereign one. But in circles like ours, we love to throw out that terminology all the time. But, but I want us to understand, and I, and I make that same mistake, is that a lot of times when we use the word sovereignty, we're actually talking about God's providence, all right? We're actually talking about God's providence. And so I've got a slide here with some definitions, and if you want these later, you can email me, and I can send them to you if you don't get them written down. Um, and so on this slide, we're looking at two kind of theologians, pastors, scholars, and how they define these terms. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, if you don't have his systematic theology, I think that it is a fine one, a great one, actually. Uh, Burkhoff defines providence as this. Providence may be defined as that continued exercise of divine energy whereby the Creator preserves all His creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. And then Grandpa John Piper, um, the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plans into actions, guides all things toward his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. Or consummation, all right? If you need that really piled down or filed down in just some clear words of how to define providence, as I put them down here at the bottom of the screen for you guys, it's really God's sovereignty in practice is his providence, all right? So in his providence, we see that God has a plan. We see that God makes promises, that God will preserve his people and his plan and his promises, and then he will flex his mighty power to use whatever means necessary to accomplish his plan, his promises, and his preservation. All right? That includes great things. All right? Like the mountains or the beach or really nice people or home cooking from your mama. Right? But also means that he will use evil, sin, natural disasters, terrible, terrible, terrible things. He will turn them 
for his good and for his glory to fulfill his plan, his promise, preserve his people, his promises and plan, and to show his power. All right? So hopefully I can illustrate that to you, not only today, but also as we continue through this series. So now that we've got some sort of working definition of God's providence, let's look back at the book of Exodus. All right? Inside the book of Exodus. Um, here, in this introductory paragraph, you will notice at the very top, and again, if you're taking notes or you're writing your own Bible or you just want to put this in a note in your phone, as I'm going through some of this, hopefully it will be able to help you. Inside the book of Exodus, um, we see in this chapter this list of names, all right? The Exodus. The second book found in the Old Testament, it starts with Genesis, right? The second book is this book titled Exodus. Now, where do we get the title from? The title we actually get, the word Exodus, is from the Greek translation of these Old Testament books, right? In Old Testament, the word Exodus in its Greek name, means the going out or the departure. It's one of the, the books in a series of books, all right, called the Pentateuch, all right? That's the Greek name for the first five books of the Bible. The Hebrew name for those first five books is a word called Torah. If you want to sound really impressive, you get kind of like some allergies and you go, Torah, all right? But then at the end, you sound really smart or like you need some NyQuil, all right? But we've got Pentateuch and Torah are the same first five books. One is just from the Greek language. One is from the Hebrew, meaning like the law, all right? But Pentateuch is, the again, the first five books found in the Old Testament where Moses is believed to be the primary author of these five books. I mean, so take that in for your mind for a minute. Who wrote Genesis? Moses did. Or at least he was the major contributor um, to these writings that we call the Pentateuch or that we call the, the Torah. And from the very beginning of the book of Exodus, Moses wants you to understand that this book is actually a continuation of the book of Genesis. Alright? So if you're taking notes this morning, you're right inside of your journal, inside of your Bible, right before you see this word, verse 1, these are the names of the Son of Israel. Right before that word, these, I want you to write in the word, and. Because inside the original language, there's actually an and there. We've just been told in English, don't start sentences with and. But God does, and so I wish I would have known that as a kid because I would have explained that God does that to my English teachers a lot growing up, all right? In the original language, there is an and there. And actually, every book inside of the Pentateuch or in the Torah, in their first word inside those books, except for Genesis, it is the word and. Because Moses is wanting us to understand that this is the continuation, that these are all united together. The Greek title, again, is the word Exodus, but the Hebrew title for the book, guess what it's not? It's not the words Exodus. Actually, the Hebrew title for the word, or title for this book, is taken from the very first phrase inside of this book. The title, it's really catchy, These Are the Names. That's the title of this book as it was originally written in Hebrew. Why? Because, again, we have a way in modern American and in Christendom of cherry-picking verses. These books were meant to be set down and read, or these letters were meant to be read in one sitting so that you would get the entire story. These are the names. These books are deeply connected. I want you to think about your favorite book or movie trilogy. Favorite book 
or movie trilogy. So there's got to be a series of these. Now imagine picking up a book or a movie only to realize that after reading or watching it um, that this was the second or third book in the series. And you didn't know that. Wouldn't that be frustrating? I mean, we don't need to bring up the Star Wars situation because they really messed us up. As an 80s kid, when you start out, the first movie being the third movie, or the fourth movie, sorry, back in the late 70s, and then you start going before that and after that, imagine for just a moment that your first experience with the Star Wars universe is watching The Mandalorian. Like, you really think Baby Yoda is Baby Yoda. Unless you have some working knowledge of that. And every time that you and I just jump into the book of Exodus without a clear understanding that is deeply connected and the continuation of the book of Genesis, it's like starting a movie. Like Ava will sometimes walk into Laura and I watching a movie. And it's like an hour into this thing. She's not seen the first hour. And then she wants to sit down. We're deeply engrossed in what's happening. And then she wants to know everything that happens. She starts asking questions. Who's this? Who's that? What's happening? What's happening? We're like, uh, 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 uh. No, that is not how we do it in the Baker house. <laughs> team Baker or team get the heck out of here. All right? You either got to start from the beginning, but we're not giving the Cliff Notes version. Right? But that's what we do when we pick up the Exodus and we don't know what's happening in Genesis. Right? These books are connected. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Or rather, maybe a better title would be The Enterings. It's a book about entering. God enters. Creation enters. Man and woman enters. But also how sin enters the hearts of humanity and is played out in creation. If Genesis is enter here, then the Exodus is exit here. Exit slavery. Exit bondage. Sin. And return to your God and return to His new garden, the promised land. Exodus begins by connecting to Genesis. And so to understand Exodus this morning, stay with me. I've got to teach you very quickly a 35,000 foot view of what's happening inside of Genesis. All right? If you have your Bibles and you want to flip with me to these passages, that's fine. I'm going to try to work through them very quickly. And so if not, it may just be better for you to listen here this morning. All right? So inside of the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we get all of these names. And blank, 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 name, 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 name. And here's the thing. And in Old Testament, when you're reading it, if you don't know how to pronounce those names, make it up, but sound confident, and everyone will believe that you got it. All right? Just don't fumble. Don't be like, just be confident. Gad. How would you like to name your kid Gad. You wouldn't, all right? That's why you don't know any gads, except for great American donuts, the best donuts on the planet. All right, don't be bringing that Krispy Kreme up in here. All right? Text and context. It's important. You've got to understand that this is continuation. So inside of the book of Genesis, go back. Go back to the names. There you go. All right. Inside of the book of Genesis, there is these characters. Inside these characters, the book of Genesis begins with this idea of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 3, God creates man and woman. He gives them life and purpose on the earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28, it says this, And God blessed them. And God said to them, again, this is an amen moment. This is the first commandment. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All right? These people aren't gremlins. You don't just pour water on them and then multiply. There's something that they get to participate in. Ask your parents. 
And in that, what begins to take place is, is that he is commanding them, worship me. And how do you worship me? Well, you're in a relationship with a person of the opposite sex. In that, as you work and steward the planet, you are to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with worshipers of God. Subdue it. Work. Be fruitful. Multiply. His mission, make more worshiping people. So many that it fills the entire planet. But what do Adam and Eve decide that they want to do? They decide that they want to go about their own mission. And so they, they forge their own path. And what does this do? It causes spiritual death, also known as separation from God. After God is gracious, providing their basic needs, God sends them out of the garden so that they will recognize both their sin and how good their lives were with Him. This realization will cause them to honor and to worship Him and only Him as their God. But what happens? They begin to have their own kids and those kids, many of them, do not go the ways of God. but go the ways of God of sin, Satan, and death. So that's in Genesis chapter 1, verses chapter 1, 2, 3, some of 4, and so on. By the time that we get to Genesis chapter 6, though, guess what's taking place? We meet a new character named Noah. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, Adam and Eve's descendants have done the exact opposite of what God told them to do. They have multiplied on the earth. However, their descendants are not honoring God, but rather are very evil. Like, like disgustingly evil. This is, again, not a surprise to God. In His plan, in His providence of redemption, He determines that He's going to start all over on the earth by flooding the earth, by killing off humanity, except for this man named Noah and his immediate Family and enough animals to kickstart the animal population. So in Genesis chapter 9, God tells this man named Noah and his sons to do what? You may know? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful in Genesis chapter 9. Be fruitful. The same thing he told Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. The goal again would be for humanity, for God followers, to once again work the land, this new land that he's going to give them to be fruitful and multiply. And this is exactly what Noah and his family started to do. And one would expect that for God saving your family, they may not have even, it's debatable, whether humanity had even seen rain up to this moment, but there were believed to be thousands upon thousands, if not millions of people on the planet during this time, and God wipes them all out except for Noah and his immediate family. And after being days upon days upon days upon this boat, he puts them in a new land, a promised land. And he tells them to work, be fruitful, and multiply. And you would imagine by the end of this season, by the end of this picture, that at the end of it, they'd be singing around a campfire, Lord, I lift your name on high in amazing grace. But that's not what happened. After they got on dry land, oh no, he made a garden all right, a garden full of grapes. And one of the last things that we see in Noah's life, he's naked and drunk. And cussing. So the scripture goes on. And we meet this care Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis chapter 12 and 13, God makes a covenant with this man named Abraham, promising to make him a great nation. Abraham, or Avram, is a, a pagan worshiper. He is not a worshiper of God, and then all of a sudden, God Almighty shows up and plucks, chooses, elects this man, who will be a father of many nations. This is where, if you grew up in church, singing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, I am one of them, right? Everybody follow me? Right arm, left arm. Turn around, sit there. That, that whole thing comes from this guy. All right? So God shows up and he says, 
um, this guy is going to be the father of a great nation. And so in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham to look up to the stars. And if he can count them, but he, it's a rhetorical question. He knows that he can't. And God takes this pagan man, transforms his life, takes him out into the fields, has him look up into the skies to see all the stars and says to him, hey, bro, that's what he would say to me. See all of these stars? You're going to have that many descendants. You're going to have that many kids. God tells him, essentially, the same thing he told Adam and Eve, and the same thing that he told Noah. He tells Abraham, Avram, and Sari, Abraham and Sarah, you are going to have a bunch of kids. Now, the only problem is, is if that you had read the book of Exodus, what do you quickly realize about Abraham and Sarah? They like really old. Like in Chandler Place. And been there a long time. Like your great great grandparents, like in their 90s. And Sarah is unable, she's what the Bible would say, barren. She is incapable of having children. And so when Abraham comes to her and says, guess what, we're going to have a bunch of kids, the Bible tells us that Sarah begins to laugh hysterically. She's like, you a fool, oh man. You're an idiot. This is absolutely hilarious. She laughs. Yet, what does God do? In his providence, he has a plan. He makes promises. God promises that they will have a child and that this child will lead to many children forming a great nation. Essentially, Adam and Sarah are the new, what? Adam and Eve. They are given the same purpose as Adam and Eve, the same purpose as Noah, Worship me, work the land, be fruitful, and multiply. From that, as you guys know, I mean, this, this man, he's got lots of problems. Abraham and Sarah's got lots of problems. Tons of problems. They're always trying to help out God. And every time they try to help out God, it causes major problems for them. But they eventually do have a promised son. Isaac was his name. Now, due to time, um, I, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail or the flyover for Isaac and Rebecca. I would encourage you to, to read that this, this week. But eventually, um, Isaac and Rebecca, guess what they do? They're fruitful and multiply. And they start having kids. Now, to give you some backstory real quickly of Jacob. That dude's life is something like out of like real housewives of the ancient Middle East. All right? Um, Jacob is a deceiver. Uh, Jacob likes things. He likes women. He's a polygamist. That means he's got more than one wife as a lot of these guys. And God never orchestrates that. He's just describing that these are the sinful decisions that many of these men are making inside of their lives. And Jacob is the poster child for many of these issues. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, God speaks to who? He speaks to this guy named Jacob. And guess what he tells them? I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation indeed, a great seemingly of nations will come from you. And kings will descend from you. So finally, we begin to see the multiplication of God's people and God's providence. One of these sons is named Joseph. In a majority of the rest of the book of Genesis, Moses spends talking about this young man, this man named Joseph. Now, the story of Joseph explains why the people have gotten so far away from the place and land that God had promised Abraham years before. As a young man, Joseph was hated by his his brothers. And when I say hated, I mean to the point at the age of 17, his brothers take him out into the middle of nowhere, far away from his daddy, because Joseph was his favorite to Jacob. 
He takes him out there, and they're, they're pretty much going to take his life and kill him. But as they're in the process of doing that, the brothers see a caravan of people. And they think, well, we might as well make some money off this deal. Let's not kill our brother Joseph, but rather let's sell him into slavery. We'll dip his coat of many colors in some blood, go back to Jacob, our daddy, and say, look, daddy, Joseph has been killed by wild animals. Right? Now, if you were to come to church next Sunday and you were to tell us that your child had been killed by, by wild animals, we would absolutely be like, what you talking about, Willis? Like, I ain't going to wherever you just came from. Right? That's strange for us. But this would have been a very common situation for people during this time. Jacob is deeply grieved over the loss of of Joseph. Now, what happens to this young man named Joseph? See, Joseph's story is one of abandonment. It's one of enslavement. Where he eventually finds himself a slave. Where? In Egypt. Where Exodus picks up. He finds himself a slave in Egypt. Joseph, out of all of these characters that we've met so far, are probably, he's probably the one that loves God the most and is the most faithful to God. By the end of Genesis, Joseph has gone from being a slave to the second in command in all of, Jesus, in all of Egypt next to Pharaoh. God reveals that a famine is going to come. That is, no food, no, no nothing. And it's going to last for seven years. But God gives them seven years to prepare for this. And he tells that to Joseph in order that he can save all of Egypt and the surrounding lands around it. So they begin to follow after Joseph's plan of storing up grain, taking care of animals, multiplying the animals, all of these sorts of things. And after seven years of preparation, guess what came? Because God has a plan. He makes promises. He's going to preserve his people. And he's going to flex his power. And that famine that he promised would come actually does come. People are starving to death. But not in Egypt. There is plenty and so what begins to happen is, is in this major plot twist, eventually Joseph's brothers, who are much older now, they're all older. Joseph is nearing 40 years old himself. He was uh, abandoned at 17. He's now 40. His brothers are, are somewhat older than him. Some are younger. And in a major plot twist inside of the book of Genesis, guess what? who shows up? His brothers show up in Egypt, don't recognize him, and are pleading for a handout and ask him. And through this crazy, crazy series of events, Joseph reveals his true identity to his brothers. He forgives them and tells them to bring Jacob, that's his dad, and the rest of the family to Egypt so that Joseph can provide for them. And that's how the end of Genesis happens. And then we get to the book of Exodus. And, continuation, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Libyan, Levi, excuse me, and Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. A few thousand years has passed from God's initial command to Adam and Eve to worship, to work to multiply. Finally, we see the fulfillment of God's promise to his people and their faithfulness to his command. God has a plan in His providence. God keeps His promises. God will preserve His people. God will flex His power to use everything. Slavery, abuse, all of these sorts of things that He's, called, he's using both good and evil 
to flex his power to do what? To accomplish his perfect plan, to fulfill his perfect promises, and to pre preserve, eventually, his perfect people. Well, let's get this straight, ladies and gentlemen. These are terrible people. They are terrible people. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Noah ends up naked and drunk. Abraham tries to give away his wife. Abraham has sex with concubines. Jacob is a con artist. His sons are terrible. They sell Joseph. One of Jacob's sons, his name is Reuben, and uh, he ends up having the intercourse with one of his dad's wives. It's considered incest during this time period. Simon and Levi, one of Jacob's sons, two of Jacob's sons, um, they get really upset at what, what are called the Shechemites. Ever heard that? Ever known a Shechemite? No. Why? Because those are not God's chosen. He did not preserve those people. But you can go to Israel right now and meet the Israelites. You ain't never met a Philistine, have you? Amorite? Hittite? No. Because in God's providence, it wasn't about preserving those people. It was preserving these people. But Simon and Levi, they get really ticked off because the, the Shechemites have done something, violated one of their sisters. And so Simon and Levi, they, they go to the Shechemites and they're like, Hey, you want to marry our people? You want to marry our women? Aren't they beautiful? And of course, the men are of like, Yes, we want to marry your sisters. And Simon and Levi, they say, okay, here's the deal. You can marry our sisters. You can marry our women. But the first thing you got to do is get circumcised. These are grown men. And now they've been convinced to get circumcised. All right? So all the Shechemites, guess what they do? They get circumcised. And while they're healing from their surgery, guess what Simon and Levi do? Kill all of them. They kill all of the Shechemites because they're too sore to fight. God was not pleased with their decision. His sons, Judah's son, uh, Judah leaves town for a while. And that's another crazy story. Judah's sons are evil and wicked. They're so evil and wicked that God just kills them. Judah eventually goes on a business trip, and while he's in a city, guess what he does? He decides to be a little frisky. And ends up having intercourse with a prostitute. Later on, his daughter-in-law, a widow of one of his sons, ends up pregnant, which was a major, major no-no during this time. Judah is going to have her put to death. And as he goes to have her put to death, she reveals that Judah is the baby daddy. That she followed him on the trip, dressed up like a prostitute, hung out outside the city gates, and when he came by, probably had a little too much to drink and decided which one he was going to pick, he randomly picked his daughter-in-law, who was veiled, and he didn't know who he was engaging with. And so immediately in this scene, imagine going, oh, okay, okay, my, my bad. We're not going to kill you. Because I'm the daddy. Terrible people. The most faithful one is Joseph. Most of Genesis is about him. And in the end of the story, what do we learn through the rest of the scripture? It wasn't even about Joseph. So you'd think that Joseph would be rewarded for his faithfulness. But then you read Matthew chapter 1. I think I have a slide for this. In Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, it says, The book of genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. If it was about being fair and right, shouldn't it say father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Joseph? 
I just told you what Judah just did. So God uses the evil of Joseph's brothers to ultimately save, preserve, and rescue Judah. The man who has intercourse with prostitutes. Not the faithful Joseph who runs from the ladies who are trying to interact with him. God puts Joseph through all of that, ladies and gentlemen, in order to keep Judah from starving to death. Slavery. Bondage. Capital punishment. He should have been killed. Joseph should have been killed inside of Pharaoh's jail with the baker. But he's not. He's preserved. Why? To keep his evil brother, Judah, from starving to death and his family from starving to death. Why? Because eventually this Judah is going to have a grandson somewhere down the line named King David of Bethlehem. And then somewhere down the line, that King David is going to have a great-great-grandson somewhere down through there. And guess what his name is? Jesus. Jesus. The story of Exodus is not how a bunch of faithful people were blessed by God, but rather how a group of undeserving, disobedient, grumbling, complaining, sinful people were preserved, governed, and by good and faithful God. So what does this mean for us in conclusion? Let's get really real about this this morning. God's providence has often been said, God's providence is best seen through a rearview mirror. But while you're in the midst of it, you can't really see it happening. Trusting God's providence is not natural for you and I, is it? And yet, through faith, Mission Church, brothers and sisters, you and I must fight to trust God's sovereign plan is playing out through His providence. And the last things that we have recorded that Joseph says to his brothers is in the last chapter. I think I have this on a slide as well. He's having this conversation with his brothers and they think after Jacob dies that Joseph is going to kill all of his brothers in revenge. And yet if there's not, I don't know that there's a greater passage in all of Scripture that illustrates God's providence than this one. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, This is the providence of God. Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he com comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And then Exodus. And what's happened in Exodus? The people are multiplying. They're working the land. They're multiplying. They are filling up Egypt with people who love God. What you meant for evil, 
and it's real evil. God isn't saying that it's not evil. No, it's real evil. And yet God is going to turn it in his own providence to fulfill his plan, his promises, his preservation, and to flex his power. The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces like fortune and chance and luck and faith. All fate, all happens to them is divinely planned. And that each event comes a new summons of trust and obedience and rejoicing, knowing that, that all of this one spiritual and eternal good. Can I, can I just confess something to you all this morning in, in my own heart? Is this. I have no idea what God is doing and it is frustrating me to death. From my limited knowledge and understanding, nothing of what we are experiencing, even in, in the COVID situation, but even beyond that, I have no idea what God is doing. And I have to fight daily to trust that God is providentially at work in my own life and in our lives. I'm here to tell you, if I do not believe in at least an ounce of God's providence, there are two things that I would never be. One is a parent. And two is a pastor. This week, on January the 6th, we start our ninth year as Mission Church. Our ninth year. There have been moments of tremendous celebration. There have been moments of tremendous growth and joy and marriages and babies and all of those sorts of things and yet simultaneously on the other side of the same coin I cannot tell you how much sadness heartbreak like questioning like people you thought would never leave leave people you think would never come come eight years before we'd get a building our attendance fluctuate. Our giving fluctuate. I definitely didn't think I would still be playing guitar. Been trying to make those things dusty for years. What if Mission Church is not about Mission Church of 2020? Mission Church is about Mission Church of 3020. When you begin to think of it that way, that's when you begin to see the providence of God. It is not about Joseph. It is not about Moses. It is not about you. It is not about me. It is about God's plan. His promises, His preserving, and the flexing of His power. It is not about us. It's about Him. What if Mission Church exists because one day we're going to plant a church that's going to change the world? What if Mission Church exists because one of your sons and daughters becomes the greatest missionary that the world has ever known outside of the Bible? What if the only way that Mission Church grows or you grow as an individual is for him to take your life? And maybe even take your or my life in what many of us would call prematurely. 
It's not about America. It's not about Mission Church. It's about God in His providence using whatever means necessary. And none of us have had it as bad as Joseph. None of us. If anybody should be like shaking their fist, shouldn't it be Joseph? It's not about us. It's about God. Can you and I worship a God who is infinitely good even if it goes really bad for you? Like really bad. Nothing in my life has gone the way I thought it was going to go. Can I worship a God if my life is really bad and really difficult? Abuse, abandonment, bullying, death. Maybe as a, a mom, you've grieved barrenness. Maybe it's singleness. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a natural disaster, your house burning down, a tornado taking it out, a, a car wreck, all these sorts of things. Is that what we learn inside the book of Exodus, what we learn inside of the scripture, is that God in His sovereignty and His character and nature as it plays out in His providence, that He will use all of those things to fulfill His plan, His promises, His preservation and His power. God's providence is never separated from His goodness. We are small players in God's grand narrative. And in the words of pastor and scholar Tim Keller, he says this, If we knew all that God knows, we would ask for exactly what He gives. Brothers and sisters, one day you're going to walk into the pearly gates. And as God reveals to us all that He is doing, both seen and unseen, you're going to lay down your crown at the foot of His throne. You're going to throw your hands in the air. And unlike the memes that you see on social media that only believes that God is good when they get something that they really want, guess what we will simultaneously do? Is not just thank Him for those good blessings, but we're going to thank Him for the cancer. You're going to thank Him for the COVID. You're going to thank Him for the death, for the ridicule, for the financial difficulties. Like you're going to thank Him for all of that. And it's really evil. But if you're in Christ and Christ in you, it is for your good. Will you trust the providence of God even if it doesn't go well for you? And we're going to see for these people inside the book of Exodus, it goes really bad. Over and over and over and over and over again. And God is not going to waste it. But He is going to draw them even through that. Let's pray together.